Lots of people getting stoned this episode. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot Podgeable Cast. Today we are doing part six, I believe, of Leviticus. You guys voted that you wanted me to finish out the book, and that's exactly what I am doing. We are picking up in chapter 20. This one is Leviticus, Life and Death. Lots of people are being put to death. Uh, A lot of people are putting others to death. There's a lot of death in this one, guys. We're also, at the end of the episode, going to be running through very quickly, probably too quickly, a bunch of feasts and how exactly those point to Christ, the end of time, all sorts of good stuff like that. One of which has a celebration whereby, to initiate the feast, you study the Torah all night. So if you want to revive that tradition, I believe it uh, comes right before Pentecost. Pentecost is indeed coming up, so maybe you could all night listen to the multi-part Leviticus series, and then you will be firmly connected into the tradition. Well, without any further ado, let's, uh, let's jump right in, guys. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Any Israelite or any foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Moloch is to be put to death. The members of the community are to stone him. I myself will set my face against him and will cut him off from his people. For by sacrificing his children to Moloch, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. If the members of the community close their eyes when that man sacrifices one of his children to Moloch, and if they fail to put him to death, I myself will set my face against him and his family and will cut them off from their people together with all who follow him in prostituting themselves to Moloch. Those are some pretty strong words. And these words um, about one closing his eyes to this sacrifice, I don't know of this language anywhere else in the law. Maybe I'm wrong, but off the top of my head, I don't know of this language ever being used. Typically, we get a prohibition, a penalty, but the other people in the community aren't referenced, but here they are. Now, in our day and age, we have abortion. And that is pretty much just sacrificing your children to Moloch. So we're going to treat this very similarly. It's often for the very same reasons, with the same expectations, and it is the purposeful killing of a child. So that's what we're talking about. And like this, it's easy to ignore. It's it's hideous. It's terrible. But how often in your daily life do you actually think, about what's going on in your country. In my country, we have something like almost 900,000 children being killed every single year through abortion. And most of the time, we just close our eyes to it. We just pretend it's not happening. But here in Leviticus, we are told that's exactly what we cannot do, and God himself will then set his face against him and that family and cut them off against people. So God will eventually um, punish the wicked and reward the innocent, but um, we do have a role as a community in, uh, in dealing with these types of wicked things now. It's not enough to just 
let God sort it out at the end of the time. It is true that he will set his face against this evil. He will. He will bring about justice. But note the involvement, particularly for this sin of the community. We've read a lot of laws. We're up to chapter 20. How many other times do we see the community being brought in? Now, there are some other times that we'll be, we'll be hinting at. But normally, when we have a stoning, since it involves the community, it's an attempt to raise awareness of the evil in the community and to encourage the community to preemptively act such that this never has to happen. Because stoning is something which most normal people would never want to participate in. And it's commanded because it forces the community to recognize that it's incumbent on them to purge this evil from their midst and it causes them to confront the evil which they have not been looking at by being forced to do the executing themselves. Now, another thing I want to point out here in this passage is that there are certain clowns, typically in public office, who like to say that they're Catholic personally and they're opposed to abortion. But, you know, in the wider context of, say, a whole country, I mean, how could they say that this is wrong? You know, the Joe Bidens and Nancy Pelosi's and other pseudo-Catholics claim exactly this. Well, here in Leviticus, we see that uh, sacrificing your children to Moloch, killing your children, is something which is prohibited not just for the Israelites, not just for the religious, and not just for people who might not necessarily be like that, but they happen to be living in the land, but we have it against absolutely everybody. Nobody can do this at all. Um, it says any Israelite or any foreigner residing in Israel. So anybody in this boundary of Israel is prohibited from this. This is not just a religious topic. This is a natural law topic. This is something which truly does um, have a binding authority on everybody, whether you are somebody who's a foreigner passing through or if you're an Israelite, or in our modern context, whether or not you are a Catholic or you are entirely secular. Um, all right, well, let's move on. I'm sure you guys are not big fans of abortion if you're listening to this podcast, and I certainly hope you are not sacrificing anything, especially children, to Moloch. Um, I'm going to put one more thing here because it becomes important later on. The way you typically sacrifice a child to Moloch is as soon as he's born, you throw him into a fire. So you burn the child alive, which is particularly gruesome. And that will become important later. Verse 6. I will set my face against anybody who turns to mediums and spiritualists to prostitute themselves by following them. And I will cut them off from their people. Now, in both cases, we have this prostitution language. And that's kind of explained in the prophets. Um, oh, what's the guy's name? That one prophet who ends up marrying a, a prostitute and basically it mirrors God's relationship with his covenant people where they go back to prostitution just like this guy's wife does. Who is that guy? I don't know. I think he's a minor prophet. Anyways, um, prostitution of oneself is compared to uh, false religion right? So we're supposed to be the, we're the bride of Christ in the new covenant, but God married his people um, 
all the way back in, in Exodus, right? We even have the signing of the marriage agreement up at Mount Sinai. So he marries his people. So he sees sacrificing to another god, right? Practicing another religion. He sees that as just prostituting yourself out, trying to get something by offering something that's only meant for God to something else. So all of these are false types of worship. And God just refers to this as just prostitution. Why? Because he has married Israel and they're going off to um, give to other groups what ought not be given. Um, And in this case, we have going to mediums and spiritualists. So they're giving this assent of faith to demons. (laughs) That's not okay, right? When we trust the prophets, when we trust in our covenant, the apostles speaking the words of Christ, who is God. Well, we're putting our faith ultimately in God and his ability to reveal his truth to his people. So our faith is founded on the identity of God as the truth himself, the cause of all truth. But here, they are turning to mediums and spirits. So that is a prostitution of themselves, and that gets them cut off from the people. Why? Because they are cutting themselves off. They are removing their faith from God, the one who ought to be telling them through the voice of the law, voice of the prophets, um, what they ought to be doing and what they need to know, and turning to um, what's revealed as demons, right? I believe it's Paul who talks about how um, these are uh, commonly uh, associations with demons, and the false gods themselves were, in large part, uh, demons also following Paul. Another thing I want to talk about here is that there's commonly this idea that On one side of the spectrum, we have rationalistic, maybe atheists or something, right? People who are really, really just hyper-scientific, rational. And on the other side, we have superstitious people, the, the spiritualists, right? And then it's supposed that the religious people occupy some type of middle. Maybe, you know, they, it's not complete, like, nonsense, like the, the crystal healing whatever people, but it's not as rational as the, you know, cold, hard, secular rationalists. So it's, religion is somehow in the middle. I don't think that's right. I think that's the wrong way to characterize it. Instead, I think that there's superstition on one side, And then there's right religion. There are these two poles. I believe the hyper-rationalist is that in name only because he too has his superstitions. He too has his priestly class and his blind adherence. Um, For instance, uh, Ed Fazer has a wonderful book called The Last Superstition. And he spells out how atheism is a type of superstition. So I will point you there to uh, to make the point there. And I think it's quite clear how um, spiritualism and mediums and all of this nonsense is superstition. So I reject this idea that religion is in between rationalism and superstition. I think that there is right religion and superstition. And I put anything that's not right religion in the superstition category. And we see that when Christianity recedes, what fills the void is ridiculous superstition every time. <sighs> um, is it Isaiah says, um, uh, was it Isaiah 52, come, let us reason together. That's what God tells us. Come, let us reason together. So when we come close to God, 
the cause, the source, the fullness, the maximum of all truth, then that elevates our ability to reason, that dispels falsehood, and that keeps us from all types of superstition, even the pseudo-rationalist variety. Verse 7. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. To remind you, this is the theme of Leviticus, how God makes man holy. And this is why we are studying it and pulling out the New Testament uh, Christological themes, because the work of Christ and the words of the law, um, uh, when we understand those two things together, we can better get a picture of how Christ is fulfilling that law, how the law was pointing to Christ, and how Christ's work is making us holy. So Leviticus, in a, in a real way, relates to the Old Testament equivalent of our current um, covenant age. And uh, I think it has a lot to tell us about Christ. So let's, uh, let's keep cooking on, because we have all of that promised everybody being put to death stuff. And this is one of my, my favorite passages because it horrifies people so much. And then as they come to realize it, they really, really like it. So let me read you verse 9. Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death because they have cursed their father or mother. Their blood will be on their head. Now, this is a very short passage, and I'm not sure if Leviticus ever elaborates, but I do know that Deuteronomy 21 does, where it says, if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his mother and father and will not listen to them when they discipline them, his mother and father shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. And then all the men of the town are to stone him to death. You are to purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear it and be afraid. This is a wonderful time to remind you that laws are tools. Tools to do what? Well, what we just talked about after reading the last verse. Tools to make us holy. <laughs> this, these are the instruments that God uses to work on our heart. So what does this do? How is this a tool? Well, one way that all of these laws are tools are that it reveals sin, right? That's what Paul tells us in Romans 7, that the law reveals sin. So whose sin does this reveal? Oh, it's the rebellious son. No, 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 no. Think to yourself, how many, uh, how many parents do you know would grab hold of their son, pull him to the gate of the city, and say, my son's rebellious. Everybody, come here, gather around, elders, men of the city, come here, get rocks, and let's, let's beat my child to death with stones. <laughs> do you know anybody would do that? Now, not always, but often, when you find truly wicked children, they're from truly wicked parents. Now, sometimes you get a bad egg, but in general, um, that's the way it works. But to find out if it's really the fault of the parents, you could, um, you could have a test. These people certainly will be righteous in their own eyes, 
But if you tell them, you know this kid who you don't like, who's wicked and terrible, you can have him killed. Well, only a wicked parent would drag their kid out to be murdered, (laughs) right? So the law reveals sin. Whose sin does it reveal? The parents. So who do they have to confront? Two groups. One, the elders who sit at the city gate. So these are the wise people. The rulers of the city come to know that this family is wicked, raising wicked children, and they seek to kill their own kid. And they also have to meet the uh, the men of the town, right? These strong men who can defend that child, who can fight against the evil in their midst. Remember, this is the goal of the law. You must purge the evil from among you, which <laughs> you may have thought relates to the kid, but I would argue also very much relates to these evil parents. Behold, this, to my knowledge, is the first law that we have recorded which represents a defense of children. And it's brilliant. Because if we just said, if parents are bad, they have to come and meet the elders and say, I'm a terrible parent. Oh, and then we have to have a bunch of men around carrying stones. Um, I don't think anybody would come to the gate of the city. But this reveals the wickedness of their heart. Um, I will add one thing. The uh, you, you, We have Jewish writings like the, um, the, the Midrash or we have the... Um, the uh, Talmud, things like that. And we get an understanding of how certain laws were applied. There is not one case, not one, in all of history where this law was used to kill a child. Not one. Not one. This is not about killing children. It's about revealing the evil of the parents and purging that evil from their midst. All right, I beat that one to death. So let's keep on going. We have all sorts of types of adultery. So we have if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, um, uh, with with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Look at that. Equality of the sexes right there. You read it. If a man has sexual relations with his father's wife. He has dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman are to be put to death and their blood will be on their heads. And then we, uh, we have stuff about the daughter-in-law. Um, let's see, um, sex with, uh, men and men. We have, uh, oh man, if you marry a woman and her mother, that's wicked. Can't do that. Burn people with fire. Oh, animals and and more. We have a lot of stuff here. So there's plenty of prohibitions. Um, and they're all prohibitions against um, sexual sins. And there's lots of death penalties here. Why? <laughs> Why so many death penalties? Well, I think what is driving home here is that um, the, uh, is that each, is that there's a natural law connection between sex and life, right? That's something that's missing in our cultural context through contraception and abortion and and just generally the permissiveness in our culture. But that's what it's trying to say. It's saying you are, um, we're applying death because you have perverted the means by which we bring life into the world. So it's showing the importance of this act. It's showing the reverence that we ought to uh, to pay to this act. 
and it's showing its deep natural law connection with life itself. And ergo, the abuse of it gets the maximum penalty of death. Um, and these maximum penalties, I, I don't know the history of application, but I will tell you that if you knew that the maximum penalty could be death, and I don't know, let's say, let's pick one of these things. Um, I don't know, let's not pick any of these things. They're pretty horrifying. But let's just say that you had a brother or sister or a friend who was engaging in one of these prohibited acts, and you knew that the maximum penalty could be death of your loved one, what would you do? What would you do? This is meant to spark a mobilization in the community so that family and friends and coworkers and neighbors police against these things happening amongst the people that they care about. Why? Why would they do this? Because these are unique sins in that they are entirely private and they're difficult to, con to <laughs> detect. It's not like um, speeding in, in our current context that somebody on the side of the road could just observe and then a, a cop could pull you over for. No, these are probably only known by the two people who are involved and possibly a few people who kind of get wind of what's going down. So we need a tool, a law, to make these people um, stop this sin. And that's why the penalties are so high. To mobilize the people to say, you better cut this out because people are going to find out and you are going to die, right? So that's my suggestion for why these seem so harsh. Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them so the land where where I am bringing you to, will not vomit you out. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I am going to drive out before you, because they did all these things. I had hoard them. Yet I said to you, you will possess their land, and I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has set you apart from the nations. There's a lot to say about milk and honey. This is commonly used as um, a reference to the Torah, which I think is interesting. So that's one way to read this. I am bringing you into a land of milk and honey, which is a land of the understanding of the law. And that's meant to be a place where we're, we're eating and drinking in joy and in plenty. So that's the goal of the law, is to bring about life. And of course, milk is meant to bring about life. It's meant to grow you. Honey is actually made for the little larva bees. It's the equivalent of milk. It's made for these little little baby bees, right, to grow big and strong, right? So the law is given by God to grow this people, to strengthen them, to take them from being baby little cows and bees to fully grown, uh, to a fully grown nation uh, capable of receiving their Messiah. That's one way to read this. Another way to read um, the milk and honey thing is that these are very, very, very unique foods. Um, if you think of most foods, almost all of them involve the destruction of some type of living thing, be it a plant, an animal, a fungi, a bacteria, something. It involves um, consuming some type of creature, but these don't. 
these are probably the two most profoundly peaceful foods that one could consume. And why does this come in opposition to all of these uh, sexual sins and whatnot? It's because all of those are an abuse of the ways in which life comes into the world. And this is contrast with following the law and by being supremely conscious of the life of all of God's creatures. Um, all right, well, let's keep going here. Verse 25, you must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals and between clean and unclean birds. Don't defile yourself by any animal or any bird or anything that moves along the ground. Um, those that I have set apart as unclean from you. You are to be holy to me because I am the Lord and I am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. A man and a woman who is a medium or a spiritualist among you is to be put to death. You are to stone them. Your blood will be on, uh, their blood will be on their own heads. So we kind of get this repetition of this. Um, I suggest they repeat this law because the immediate context is following God's law, following God's precepts, following God's um, revealed words versus finding rival sources of authority such that we now are embracing the unclean. We are disregarding the value of life, etc. So I think that's probably why they included these laws right after the part where we just read. Verse, I mean, chapter 21. We're cooking along today, guys. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the priest, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, a priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die, except for his close relative, such as his mother or father, his son or his daughter or his brother, or an unmarried sister who's dependent on him since she has no husband. For, for her, he may make himself unclean. He must not make himself unclean for people related to him by marriage and so defile himself. I've read this part to you in a recent episode. You might remember it. Um, I did one called Stretch Forth Your Hand when, um, oh, what was it? When Obeying God Breaks His Holy Law. So we're really doing a very pro-law series here. But go back and listen to that episode. I actually think that was a pretty good one. It's about as nuanced as you can get. But we talk about times where we actually ought to, quote, break the law. And there's lots of nuance there. But this is one that I zeroed in on because um, when Jesus talks about the Good Samaritan, he describes two groups, priests and Levites, and they, they're going over to do their, their um, required actions, right? And they see what looks like it's probably a dead body on the side of the road, and it's a Samaritan, right? And they're dressed differently. So we know that this is a non-related person. So if they went over to help this unrelated person who is very likely just dead on the side of the road, or at least to check, and then they find out he's dead, well, they're, they're violating this verse because it says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them that this priest must not make himself unclean for any of these people who die except for these close relatives, right? So Jesus suggests that what they should have done is just uh, gone over anyway, right? Because the whole role of worship is to show mercy. And that's what they would be doing. But 
I go into that in the other episode. I invite you to uh, to give that one a listen because um, that I think is what what Jesus is kind of targeting, and he shows the role of the priest is elevated to something higher, and that the role of the law is to act as a tool, is to teach, it's to orient us towards the good. But I'm just repeating that other episode, but just worse. So let's get back to this episode with verse 5. Priests must not shave their heads or shave off the edges of their beard or cut their bodies. They must be holy to their God and must not profane the name of the Lord because they present the food offerings to the Lord, the food of their God. They are to be holy. Recall the edge of the field laws and the edge of the hair laws that we commented on, I believe, in the last episode, right? So we kind of understood that as um, at least our theory is that this means that not shaving the edge of their beards or the edge of their their uh, their hair means that they ought to keep in mind the poor in the same way that not cutting the edge of your field means that you're giving provision for those who need to glean those edges. What about the cut the bodies thing? I'm not entirely sure what the context is here. It's very possible it's a ritual scarring, like a tattoo, um, and that could be connected to... Um, to native rituals that priests would do. There's a lot of cutting oneself in different priesthoods, which are more paganing stuff, uh, some of which is to get God's attention, right? So recall the Aztecs cut their genitals to pour out blood um, on their sacred days. And it's meant to get God's attention. Look at me, you know, I'm cutting myself, you know, pay attention to me. But but God doesn't want that. Um, God's not the God that needs to be woken up that needs, um, uh, that needs to be shocked in order to, to see us. God's one that already sees us. And another reason why, um, at least in the Christian tradition, I believe that we have the, the tonsure for priests, and I believe that's probably coming from this, um, uh, the not shaving the edge, though now we do shave the top. And anyways, there's lots of hair-related things. Um, but the tantra stuff, similar reason from what I hear the yarmulke is. And that's the idea that God is always watching, that God is always above. So the yarmulke reminds them that God's always above them looking at them. And the tantra means that their thoughts are open to God, right? There's no hair covering the very top of their head. Um, and that's why we get right afterwards, um, don't cut your body, <laughs> right? Because God's already watching you. God already cares about you. God already sees you. So you don't need to cut yourself. You don't need to be violent towards yourself. You don't need to do those things. God already cares. God already knows. God already sees. Verse 7. They must not marry women defiled by prostitution or divorce from their husbands because priests are holy to their God, regarding them as holy because they offer up the food of your God. Consider them holy because I am the Lord, because I, the Lord, am holy. I who make you holy. So you might be thinking, um, come on, right? Like, what if this prostitute um, turns her life around, right? I do want to point something out here. And that is, um, well, first, this is a prohibition because we, we need guardrails to make sure that the priests are not going to have any type of scandal that they're not going to be drawn away by people who may have engaged in habits which uh, aren't entirely um, purged from them, right? We want our priesthood to have a very high standard of holiness. 
so that they can participate in God's act of helping us become holy, right? So we do need to have this higher standard. And to get back to the part about, well, what if, say, the prostitute repents? Why, why couldn't she marry a, a priest at that point? I, I think this is a misunderstanding of what was going on pre-Messianic age. Um, when, when Christ died and was resurrected, that shook the foundations of the universe. That made life-transforming grace more easily and readily available to all people than at any time in all of human history. This was truly the point that divides history. And that's why we rightly divide the year or so. When we think about how easy it is to call on the name of the Lord and be saved, this is not true at all times. We have, across the world, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of churches. We have the sacrifice of Christ being represented to the Father, like a little um, beam of light from every corner of the globe, which is slowly renewing the world, which is like a heartbeat pumping grace into the world, into the entire universe, is making grace available because God became man, infused his divinity with our humanity, became a material creature in time and space, and poured his love into creation in this new way. And then that's even bolstered by the Holy Spirit, which he breathes out to his apostles, which comes upon the church at Pentecost, and which stays with us to help us in becoming holy. So in the Old Covenant, when we see people who turn from wicked ways, that is uniquely miraculous in a way that it is not today. I have an episode, I'm referencing lots of episodes this time, and uh, it's an older one. I think it's good. I hope it's good about how the Messianic age is not a disappointment. And I start all the way back at uh, the first modern human beings. And I talk about what the normal state of humanity actually looks like. For somewhere between a half and a third of our history, we had no permanent dwellings. We were homeless. And we were also naked. We had no clothes. That the murder rate was as high as something like 40%. Like the amount of evil and wickedness in the past is unbelievable. The lives that we live today in the Messianic age are historically, there's no other word, miraculous. So those are the points I want to make, and I'll reference you back to those episodes, that the Messianic age is not a disappointment. It is everything that the people before Christ ever imagined, plus, 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 plus. And we're just blind to see it, not grateful enough to appreciate it. If a priest's daughter defiles herself by becoming a prostitute, she disgraces her father. She must be burned by fire. Let's talk about prostitution. It's popped up a couple times. A lot of people see it as pretty scandalous that Augustine and Aquinas both argued, the two greatest thinkers in the Christian age, um, both argued that prostitution, though definitely wrong, of course, ought to be legal because they believed that the effects of a law to make it illegal 
would produce more harm than leaving it legal, even though it's bad. And that really tells us a lot about their view of the role of law. Um, there are some, uh, typically on the, the Catholic uh, far right, I would say, I would call it maybe, um, who believe that the state ought to put lots of moral laws to really, really firmly direct the people. Um, some suggesting that uh, mortal sins should just be outlawed, right? Why, why isn't that just a civil penalty? But, you know, recall the way that Augustine and Aquinas think about this. They view laws, not in just this idealistic way, but as practical tools. And Leviticus has shown us a lot of this. It's not just ideological. It's not just um, ideal. It's not, uh, it does actually have to be applied and there needs to be wisdom here. Um, but these are tools. These are tools. I suggest that the reason why Aquinas and Augustine may have thought that this should be permitted is because they saw it as um, a protection against the dissolution of families. They were in a time where uh, young single women just got married, like almost instantly. You go from being a child and you're in your father's house to, okay, we find you a husband, you find yourself a husband, and bang, you're married, and now you're starting life. So there's really not this big bank of um, grown-up and single women like there is today that really didn't exist. So if you're going to go and uh, commit adultery with a woman that's not your wife, um, that means that either it's going to be somebody who's too young for marriage, at which point hopefully that's just not having it at all, and luckily that's pretty rare, and that's obviously wrong for a variety of reasons. Um, and uh, the other option is a woman who is old enough for married to be married, and guess what? That probably means she's married now. So that means that you are doubling the effect of your sin. You have committed adultery against your spouse and damaged your family, and because you roped somebody else from another family in, now she has committed adultery also against her husband and harmed her family. So this destabilizes two families. And since the family is the building block of civilization itself, this is extraordinarily damaging for all involved. And then if there's a child as a result, well, now that throws the family into more chaos because, well, wait a minute, we have children in the first groups and now we have this new child, which is binding these two families, which ought not been connected in this way together. And it's an absolute mess. So they saw that as incredibly bad. Now, what was also incredibly bad, but in their view, slightly less incredibly bad would have been a situation where this small bank of adult unmarried women who had become prostitutes already, that same man goes over there, commits adultery against his wife. So we get all of those bad parts, but at least on her end, she isn't married and destroying a family. The sin kind of terminates there. Um, now you can think what you like about their pronouncement there, but I think that that's the, the way that they were likely thinking. But why then does the law say that in this case, um, this prostitute should be burned with fire. Um, that doesn't seem to be what the, the father said. They take a more permissive approach than we even do now, right? Now, oh, and by the way, I think in our case, that bank of large 
unmarried women means that we don't have the same justification as they had for prostitution. So I absolutely believe that should certainly be wrong and illegal today. Um, yeah, for lots of reasons. Also, because we don't have a bank of prostitutes, which means if we legalized it, we would go from a state where we have no prostitutes to one where women are being encouraged to become prostitutes. And I can think of few things worse for them or for humanity to have that shift. All right, where was I? All right, so why are they being burned with fire? Well... Um, I told you earlier that it's important to remember that a sacrifice to Moloch involves taking the child and burning the child to death with fire. Well, guess what? This seems to be equating um, her role as a prostitute to the, um, the sacrifice to Moloch. How? Because at this time, there weren't contraceptives. Not, not really. The, if you're a prostitute, you don't want to become pregnant like how are you going to support the kid? What are you going to do with this? You know, are you still going to be able to hire yourself and you're pregnant? So they killed the child so they could continue being a prostitute. So a prostitute at this time is a woman who has repeatedly killed their children. Um, so we'll, lead, we'll read later the famous eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. What she is getting is what she has done. She has been participating in the sacrifice of Moloch. Yes, maybe before the child is born, whatever. But the Bible is equating the killing in the womb to the sacrifice of Moloch by applying to her the, um, the burning to death that she is applying to those kids through their um, sacrifice to Moloch. Um, yeah, once we get to Augustine and Aquinas, Augustine talks about how contraceptives are on the scene, how they have things like condoms in the Roman Empire. So it's likely that we don't have prostitutes doing this to the same extent, though I'm sure at different times and places this was the normative way. But at least um, in principle, they could have used things which wouldn't rely on um, repeated abortion. Instead, it's a different sin, but not nearly as bad a sin, the sin of contraception. Picking up in verse 10. The high priest, the one among his brothers who has had the anointing oil poured on his head, who has been ordained to wear the priestly garments, must not let his hair become unkept or tear his clothes. He must not enter a place where there is a dead body. He must not make himself unclean, even for his mother and father, nor leave the sanctuary of his God or desecrate it, because he has been dedicated by the anointing oil of his God. I am the Lord. The woman he marries must be a virgin. She must not marry a widow, a divorced, he must not marry a widow, a divorced woman, or a woman defiled by prostitution, but only a virgin from his own people, so that he will not defile his offspring among his people. I am the Lord who makes him holy. So again, see how the law speaks of the role of reproduction and um, death, all in the same breath. It sees this just under the subheading of life and offenses against life. That's why we see all of this just uh, thrown together. So the high priest shall take no part in death and no part in the perversion of the means of life. Likewise, our high priest 
takes no part in death because he's resurrected into eternal life. A, a resurrected eternal life that is contagious. So whereas uncleanliness can be passed, our high priest has a holiness that can be passed on, that can be made infectious. He takes no part in death, not because he doesn't endure death in the cross, but instead because he confronts it, defeats it, and rises again um, and descends to heaven. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, For the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man who has a crippled foot or hand or who is a hunchback or a dwarf or who has any eye defect or has any festering or running sores or damaged testicles. No descendant of Aaron the priest who has any defect is to come near to present the food offerings to the Lord. He has a defect. He must not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the most holy food of God as well as approach the holy food. Yet, because of his defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar and so desecrate my sanctuary. I am the Lord who makes them holy. Wow. What's going on here? Is the law ableist? Does God hate crippled people? No, obviously not. Instead, this points to a day that by participating in Christ's sacrifice and being installed into his body in baptism and further drawn in through the Eucharist, we become living sacrifices. This is because we, like Christ, are meant to be priest and sacrifice. And here we see that um, the priest is meant to be without blemish. And we will read later on in the law, this set of provisions is almost identical for the priest as the sacrifice. So what is this meant to show? It's meant to show the deep connection of the state of the priest to the state of the sacrifice. That is fulfilled in Christ being the unblemished, perfect sacrifice for our sins and the ultimate perfect high priest, a priesthood which we have to participate in through the salvific means of baptism because we are all ultimately defective and cannot be a propitiation for our sins. Just like people are excluded in the old covenant, and yeah, I'm sure that was painful, we ought to recognize that in, our, in ourselves, if God marks our defects, if he marks our sins, who can stand, says scripture. So this points ultimately to the need for a true, perfect high priest and sacrifice. It's not meant to be ableist, guys. But let's dig a little bit into the specific defects that God does not want his priests to have. Because this is the Old Testament. It is basically all of the spiritual lessons of the New Testament put into a material, physical form and like played out in real human history. So let's, uh, let's understand this list a little bit better. First thing, they can't be blind. Why? Well, um, what is it? Matthew? Yeah, I think in Matthew, Jesus says, woe to you, blind guides. 
You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anybody who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by the oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anybody swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by the oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anybody who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anybody who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Does he literally mean blind in the new covenant? No, 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 no. But there's more than one sense of blind. So we don't want priests to be blind because they miss the whole point of their priesthood. They miss the important and they're they're entirely blinded by things which are um, thoroughly beside the point, by little technicalities, by their own by their own arrogance, by their who knows what. But here, look at his examples. Um, these people are taking their position and saying, "Oh, um, this is the way to be holy," and they're missing the point. They're saying, "Oh, it's the gold and the altar," and they miss the point of the altar. They're saying, "Oh, it's the um, what, what is the, whatever the stuff is in the temple," but they miss the importance of the temple. They are missing the most important things, and they're majoring on the minors instead. So we don't want priests to be blind to miss the most important things and to dwell on things which are small, unimportant, on technicalities, or to guide people into error. So we don't want them to be blind. What about lame? Do we want our priests to be lame? What, what would that look like? Does that just mean that they uh, sing terrible songs and hang uh, felt banners? No, that's not the type of lame we mean. Instead, lame means you can't be active. You can't be uh, performing different tasks. You can't be doing work. You simply have to be supported. We want our priests to be active, to be doing things, to be hard workers, not to be sitting back, relaxing, getting fat and lazy. No, they can't be lame. Another one, disfigured or deformed. We call these are physical manifestations of a uh, of something which is pointing to spiritually. So if you see somebody who's disfigured, you go, oh, they're, they're not pleasing to look at. They're not pleasing to behold. What I suggest here is that our lesson ought to be that our priests should be um, easy to approach, to be likable, to be winsome, to be happy, to be inviting, to be kind, to be the type of people that we want to be around. Not people who seem aloof, you know, infected with clericalism. Not people who seem judgmental, but people who seem full of mercy and um, generally attractive to be with. They can't have crippled hands and feet. Now, hands and feet, we learn, um, relate to doing the work of God. So these people need to be capable of doing the work of God. Now, the priestly job involves lots of things. Prayer, the sacrifice of the mass, uh, the uh, giving of the sacraments, the administration of a church, the correction um, of uh, people who do evil inside of the church, the proclamation of the gospel, um, the care for the poor. 
And oftentimes, hands and feet relate to that. Though feet often mean missionary activity. Hands mean healing, helping the poor, etc. like that. So they need to be capable of doing this. And then they need to do it. What about these other ones? We have hunchback or dwarf. Particularly the hunchback reminds me of the uh, of Augustine talking about the posture of sin, of caved in on oneself. Um, and we certainly don't want uh, don't want priests who are caved in, who are selfish, who are beset by sin, and don't have their eyes fully on God. What about the festering sores? Well, I don't think I want anybody to have festering sores, but. Um, in this case here, our priest today, what is a festering sore? It's something which is very off-putting. Um, it could be a very, uh, well, we talked a lot about festering sores in one or two episodes before, and I'll just relate you back to that. And then my favorite of all, the most important one, the one that Moses ends this list with. This is something which is desperately needed amongst priests and well, we certainly need it today. Here's what Moses said, says would disqualify you from being a priest if you have damaged testicles. Why? Well, a priest needs to be manly, bold, courageous, protective, assertive, strong. But today, many priests don't want to rock the boat. They're kind of soft effeminate, non-confrontational. They avoid hot-button issues. They just stay in the safety of their parish. They avoid controversy. They let the status quo continue. They let the church be ruled by church ladies instead of leading it, you know, like a priest. They don't enforce discipline. They allow the, the, the uh, congregation to run amok for evil, to just continue. They don't uh, take stands against a falsehood. They don't review their RCIA programs to see if falsehood's being taught. They don't teach their own children. It's ridiculous. They leave their children unequipped to fight the devil. Do they um, teach the congregation about how to defend their faith? Mm, I hope they do. A priest with uh, who's uh, not manly, and I think this is what it's pointing to, is one that would be neglectful of his spiritual children. He's failing at his fatherly charge, not protective, not providing these things. I think this is the most important qualification today for a priest that, um, well, not in my words, not in my words, but as Moses would say, when relaying the very words of God, priests need to have some balls. And on that note, we'll take a brief break and we'll pick up on chapter 22. Chapter 22. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons to treat with respect the sacred offerings the Israelites consecrate to me, so that they will not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, for the generations to come, if any of your descendants is ceremonially unclean, and yet 
comes near the sacrificed, the sacred offerings that the Israelites consecrate to the Lord, that person must be cut off from my presence. Is that second verse I want to drill into a little bit. Psychologically speaking, we often just view ourselves as the hero in our own life story. Um, nobody really ever thinks they're the bad guy, right? Uh, scripture says that every man is right in his own eyes. We have an amazing ability to justify all of our choices, even our bad choices. <laughs> um, but you know what? It's not actually our perception that matters. Our perception is not reality. God's perception, now that, that is reality. And here the law reminds us of that, that um, God's standard is holiness. And it's an objective standard that we need to live up to. And that here we have being cut off from his presence is the result of us not recognizing our own uncleanness. Ah, let's keep on rolling a little bit here. Um, I'm going to jump down a smidgen. We have, uh, we have a couple verses about uh, priesthood and a little bit of it's redundant. But I want to get to a really cool part here, which I think is, well, I just said cool. It's doubly cool. Verse 10 says, No one outside a priest's family may eat the sacred offering, nor may the guest of a priest or his hired workers eat it. But if a priest buys a slave with money, or if slaves are born in his household, they may eat his food. If a priest's daughter marries anyone other than the priest, uh, da, 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 da. okay, that's the part I want to zero in on. Um, I can't wait for the slavery laws because I think it explodes a lot of silly modern preconceptions of the backward and barbaric biblical injunctions. I think all that's ridiculous. So I can't wait to explain those, but we're going to have to hold off there. What I do want to talk about is this line. We have the priest's share that's meant just for them. Eating of this sacred offering that makes them holy. The guest can't eat it. No, no. People who aren't in his family can't eat it. No, no, not that either. Hired workers can't eat it. No, 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 no. Hired worker. No, no, they can't eat it. But a slave can. A slave who is bought with money or a slave who is born in the household may eat this food. Now, we have referenced the Apostle Paul about a thousand times, and that's because he's a Pharisee. He had Leviticus and the rest of the law at the forefront of his mind. And Paul tells us that we were bought with a price, that we were made slaves of Jesus Christ, that we are in the household of God, and that through baptism, we are being born into his household. I think it's another time where the law helps us understand Paul. So what's it saying here? Well, it's actually pointing to the fact that one day, not just a priest, not just the high priest, but the great high priest, Jesus Christ, will buy us, incorporating us as slaves into his household, bought with a price so that we can eat the sacrificial meal that he gives of himself. So that's why Paul is describing us as slaves, I suggest. Now, we're also described as sons elsewhere, and both are absolutely true. But the sense in which we are slaves, I believe to be this. 
All right. Um, let's, we got a lot more to do. We got a lot more to do for sure. Okay, so we have this section here, which I think you're going to recognize. Remember we read about those different defects that um, um, the priest can have, and I said that in the later passage we have similar ones about um, the sacrifice itself. I believe this is the section here. Um, we have do not bring any defect because it will not be accepted um, from the uh, – will not be accepted on your behalf. And it talks about do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured, the maimed, and anything with warts or festering or running sores. And uh, uh, let's see, here we go to skip down a little bit. We can't offer an animal whose testicles are bruised or crushed or torn or cut. So it really drills in on that part. And yes, I think I've used the word testicles more times than maybe any other episode. Um, but yes, we have this pairing of the sacrifice and the priest. So we can't offer a sacrifice, which is not perfect, and we can't have a unperfect priest doing that. We are all, of course, not perfect. None of us are perfect except for Christ, and thus this points to him ultimately. Oh, I guess 26 is next. The Lord said to Moses, when a calf or lamb or a goat is born, it is to remain with its mother for seven days. From the eighth day on, it will be acceptable as a food offering presented to the Lord. Do not slaughter a cow or a sheep and its young on the same day. This here kind of supports my, my point, how it's pairing the animal with the man and it's showing this type of covenantal relationship because the day that an animal can be made acceptable being offered to God is the eighth day. And as you recall from the last episode or the one before that or something, the day that we come into the uh, the uh, the family of God, the, the community and the old covenant is the eighth day, right? And we see that in Luke when Jesus is brought to the temple um, to fulfill that part of Leviticus. Um, keep my commands and follow them. I am the Lord. Do not profane my holy name, for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who made you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. I skipped a little bit here, but I jumped down to this one because I think we often let it slide. Right? Do not profane my holy name. How often do you hear people use God or Jesus Christ just flippantly or even worse as swear words? So here's my challenge to you. Um, if somebody says Jesus Christ like a swear word, um, well, how about uh, we, uh, we have a priestly role in being fully formed in all parts of our body and we take courage and say, hey, do you think it's cool to just use Jesus Christ as a swear word? Do you just want to just uh, offend people who are religious, or what are you trying to do? Oh, I, I'm I'm sorry, I, I didn't know that offended you. Well, I'm sure it's pissing Jesus Christ off, too. And just let the awkwardness just ride. Um, so call some people out on that and tell them, be like, hey, don't use Jesus as a swear word. Just don't. Stop. And you'll be surprised how embarrassed people get really, really quick. And that's a wonderful thing, because... We, as a community, are meant to help each other become holy. Um, if the people in the Old Covenant 
could be called upon to stone people and also called upon to take preemptive action to make sure that nobody has this terrible penalty, then you should be too. Because it is a big problem to use the the Lord's name in vain, to use Jesus Christ as a swear word, to profane God's holy name. So go and protect other people from doing that sin. Um, Yeah, go be courageous. It's going to be awkward. You're going to make people feel uncomfortable. And you know what else? You're going to make them a little bit more holy. Chapter 23. Here, we are getting into a bunch of uh, festivals. And I got to tell you, I am not a festival um, master. Not at all. And really, this probably should be its own episode going through them. So I'm just going to hit a few um, uh, kind of major points as we run through these all in all too quickly. So, um, we have, the Lord said to, to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. We have the Sabbath. There are six days when you should work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. Now, I remember, um, long time ago, I struggled with the idea that the church changed the Sabbath, or so I was told, that, oh no, Saturday is not the Sabbath anymore. I know the law says this, and nothing's supposed to have really gone out of existence or stopped or changed, right? But we just decided that, um, let's move it to, uh, to Sunday. That's our, that's our new Sabbath, right? Um, no, that's not actually what happened. Um, Saturday is still the Sabbath. That's, that's true. Um, and the eighth day has now been elevated in importance through Christ's resurrection and the covenant that we are now included in. So we don't have one holy day per week. We now have two holy days per week. Now, because we are not part of the uh, Hebrew nation, and we are not part of the Old Covenant. That means a lot of the regulations surrounding Saturday drop off. Now, I do think it's actually probably a good idea to engage in some traditional Sabbath rest on the traditional Sabbath, in addition to the new elevated eighth day, which is the Lord's Day. Um, so I would invite you to do a little bit of both and be reminded that, as Jesus tells us, the goal of the Sabbath is to do good to save life, to show mercy. Not to act for yourself, but to act for your neighbor. All right. Now we have the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed time. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's festival of unleavened bread begins. For seven days, you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. And of course, nothing in the law passes away until it is fulfilled. And we're told Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed. Now let us keep the feast. So this doesn't go away. It is fulfilled in the Eucharist, the new Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
the new Paschal Lamb who has been sacrificed. Offering of the first fruits. So that's the that's the next one. We get some uh, wave offering action here. A bunch of sacrifices. We get fine flour, olive oil, um, stuffs going up in a pleasing aroma, and um, this is another one that this celebration is fulfilled in Christ. And Paul, our guide to all things Old Testament, uh, <laughs> reminds us that Christ is the first fruits among the dead. So he rises first. And that makes sense that he's saying he's a first fruits because, I mean, we, this goes all the way back to like, I don't know, the, the dream of Joseph, right? The first um, sheath of wheat to rise up, to resurrect. So we are celebrating, they were celebrating, though unknowingly, ultimately Christ being the first fruits among the dead. Um, and by honoring him as as a as the one who's who's risen from the dead, well, yeah, we're actually fulfilling this feast. Um, not doing the exact same things on it, but we're fulfilling it. So it's passed away because it has been fulfilled. Next one, the Festival of Weeks, um, also known as the Latter First Fruits or the Harvest Festival. And this one, I think, is cool because it really does have a perfect parallel. And I'm sure that you'll You'll catch on to it. I'll read this section to you. From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheath of the way of offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of the ephod of the finest flour, baked with yeast, Baked with yeast. Isn't that one interesting? As a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord, present with this bread seven male lambs, each a year old and without defect, one young bull and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old for the fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord is a wave offering, together with the bread of the first fruits. They are sacrificed. They are a, sacrif a sacrificed offering to the Lord for the priest. On the same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and to do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come wherever you live. How is this a lasting ordinance? How does this continue? Oh, wait, we have another section right after. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gleanings of the harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. We commented on that one. But this is coming as the harvest, so they throw this law in again to remind us that this is necessary during the harvest. So what is this fulfilled in? Um, Pentecost, right? Uh, count off 50 days. That should be a big, 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 big clue. Also, it's a harvest festival. And we, I mean, just note the new grain reference in the passage. There's new grain here. Um, so what happened at their Pentecost, right? Their, their 50 days? Well, there's this giant harvest, bringing in the harvest and celebrating. What happened in our Pentecost? Well, 
after Peter's sermon, we brought in 3,000 in one day, right? We have people being presented to the Lord. We have um, souls coming in. We are reaping the, the, uh, th- this harvest, right? Um, yeah, so that one's pretty well fulfilled. Next one, the festival of trumpets. This one's not yet fulfilled. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present a food offering to the Lord. So this um, festival of trumpets begins 10 days of repentance. This is uh, also called festival of trumpets is uh, Rosh Hashanah. The beginning of the year um, leading up to the Day of Atonement. That's what that's what this is, is doing here. Um, so this feast would mark the end of the harvest. So if you want to study this one a little bit more deeply, think end of the world. Why? Because we're told in the New Testament that there will be a blast of a trumpet, right, by the angel in heaven, and that the angels will come down and reap the last bit of the harvest, right? The harvest will be complete, everything will be brought in, we get these trumpet blasts, and then we have a uh, total repudiation of of evil, a final defeat of evil, and the end of the world, stuff like that, right? Um, The total renewing of creation, which is what this leads to, which is the Day of Atonement, which I explained a lot in the Day of Atonement episode. Um, I do want to point out one thing. In these regulations, it stresses the fact that it's a Sabbath, that this is a time where we, where we don't work, where we don't do all of this stuff. And I want to point out that, that this carries over into the New Testament. Jesus says that his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Other religions of this time, and heck, even today, right, are telling us to do all sorts of things, from the scarring of your body to the burning of your children to all sorts of other terrible and depraved acts. Look what God asks us to do on the Day of Atonement. He says, rest. This is God is at work. He is making us holy. Um, We don't have to get his attention. Um, We already have it because he loves us. Um, We don't have to... Uh, cut up our body. We don't have to do those things. No, 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 no. He wants us to be whole and complete, holy and perfect as he's perfect. The festival of tabernacles or Sukkot. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no work. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is the closing special assembly. Do no regular work. These are the Lord's appointed festivals. You are to proclaim sacred assemblies for bringing food offerings to the Lord. The burnt offerings, the grain offerings, sacrifices, etc. Um... Oh, let's see. We'll skip over that part. So begin with the 15th day on the seventh month. You are to gather the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day also is a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from um, luxurant trees, from palms and willows and other leafy trees, 
and rejoice before the Lord for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Woo, lots of good things to know here. Here's a small one. See how at this point we get the seventh and eighth day become Sabbath? I think this points towards what I was talking about earlier, how the Sabbath doesn't go away, go away, but we do get something new. This eighth day becomes elevated. Why? In what context? Well, here, because of the Feast of Tabernacles. Hmm. Anything in the New Testament talks about tabernacles. I got it. John writes that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Also, pretty darn sure, I should have checked this, but it's just coming to me now. Um, <laughs> with all of these palm branches and all of this stuff, when Jesus enters into his holy city, I'm pretty sure it's on this feast day, right? So we have the leafy palms, we have all this stuff, we have everything out. That is the time when they're being ready to accept the Messiah. Um, now, uh, I'd say that this, I mean, this kind of would be a good lead up to Easter, but it's also a good lead up to Christmas. This is kind of like a, a, a ye old advent. All right. Um, I almost ended it here, thought about ending it here, but um, we're going to pick it up with the next chapter and then we are going to uh, to wrap this episode up because it kind of takes a funny transition. So we have all the laws we talked about there. We have all of the festivals and from the festivals, we uh, we make a little shift. We go right into um, uh, blasphemers being put to death. <laughs> so we're going to pick up on verse 10 here. And there's not too many narrative parts of Leviticus, but this is one of them that comes after these, uh, these uh, laws about festivals. Now the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father went out among the Israelites and a fight broke out in a camp between him and an Israelite. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name with a curse. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelmeth and the daughter of Dibra and Adanit. They put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the blasphemer outside of the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, Anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord will be put to death. The entire assembly must stone them, whether foreigner or native-born. When they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. So why does this story come right after the celebrations? Well, I think it's quite the contrast, right? Before, we have the joint celebration of a united people in light of the reality and the goodness of God. And in this story that comes right after, we have the polar opposite. We have this private animosity. Between these divided people, right? Part Egyptian, part Israelite, then versus the Israelites, right? 
And instead of leading to unity and joy and celebration, it descends into anger and violence. Um, now, in this section, the well, in the earlier section, everybody is told to gather, right? Three of the festivals, uh, I forget which ones y'all have to gather, in uh, Jerusalem. So we have this unity, this gathering. The people are coming together. But in this second case... They have to be brought together in order to stone somebody to death. So an incredible contrast of the joy, the milk and honey that comes from obeying God's law and being brought into union with God and neighbor versus the violence and evil and pain and, and stoning and wickedness that comes about um, when we do the exact opposite. 17 picks up. Anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of somebody's animal must make restitution life for life. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Anyone who kills an animal must make restitution. But whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God. Two big points here. One, uh, this is just. It is. This shows the real cost of offenses. And we should never forget this. So we say in Mass that we have greatly sinned. And we just, oftentimes we don't really let that sink in. But there is a just retribution of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a fracture for a fracture. In our lives, we have wounded and hurt other people. And the effects of our sin have radiated out like, like a pebble thrown into a pond, radiates out even to the edges. And we are truly liable for that. That's true. So that's one point I want to make, is to recognize the gravity of our sin and that the demand of justice is high, and that ought to move us towards incredible gratitude for what Christ has done. When he says, you have heard an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and then he brings about a supernatural forgiveness. The second point I want to make is recall, we've been stressing that a lot of these penalties, most of them, are maximum penalties. So what is it doing here? It means that if somebody knocks out your tooth or fractures fractures your jaw or something, you can't kill them. If somebody um, kills your animal, you can't kill them. If somebody does something to you, there is a maximum amount. There is a capped amount of retribution, which goes up to the point of evenness. Um, so oftentimes we read things like this in the law and we think, oh, I get it. Um, God totally wants us to knock the other guy's tooth out, right? Right here, tooth for tooth. What else could it possibly mean? No, God reveals that he, he, he likes mercy more. He would really rather for us to forgive. But here in the law, he says, um, accommodating the fact that we don't yet have the Messiah. We don't yet have the means of grace which transforms our heart, which pours into our hearts the uh, divine love, which makes it possible to, uh, to forgive others in this way. 
understanding our human weakness, he says, all right, but the most you could take in retribution is a tooth, is an eye, is a fracture. Then Moses spoke to the Israelites, and they took the blasphemer outside of the camp, and they stoned him. The Israelites did as the Lord commanded Moses. So that's how we're ending here, kind of on that down note. Um, and yeah, I know especially in this episode, the law seems harsh, even even brutal. But before we end, I want to paint you just a very brief picture I, of what the world might look like if it if it wasn't, if it was more lax, if it didn't remove evil in this way. I probably did a better job on the Messiah episode a long time ago, but remember that one stat, that something like 40% of people, when we pull up their uh, skeletons from the ground throughout human history, dying of murder. Can you imagine that? 40% of the people you know died by murder. Um, when we're hearing about things like the sacrifices of Moloch, yeah, we have some pretty bad evil stuff going on. But can you imagine that you come into a land and what people think is right and holy, what people think is worship and good and wholesome is burning children alive. You think of other cultures which were not Christianized, like the Aztecs we talked about, who would find young virgin girls, kidnap them, give them drugs and different stuff to to uh, to control them and drag them up to the top of the temple and sacrifice them. We're told that when the conquistadors came, they saw a river of human blood pouring down from the temple. Ugh, it's disgusting. That is the state of humanity. Egypt, that's the state of humanity. Thousands of years, a pharaoh with absolute tyrannical control, forcing people into terrible, brutal labor. People in unbelievable poverty, not just for a year, not just for a lifetime, but for generation after generation after generation, grinding terrible poverty and want and violence and injustice. The world was an unimaginably wicked place, but God has been working from the beginning to restore it. Um, don't think just modern society was Canaan and that God was just being overly strict and, you know, kind of difficult with his people. No, 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 no. He was fighting against evil and that looked harsh because the world, because the enemies that he was fighting were unbelievably wicked and depraved. And if Israel had stopped being holy, then the truth of God's holy law would have been forgotten. And then the community from which the Messiah came to redeem the world, to renew creation, would never have existed. So the law we should meditate on, we should appreciate, we should regard as holy, and we should understand that every single bit of this written by God, was used as a tool, sometimes as a scalpel, sometimes as a saw to cut off a gangrenous limb. But all of it was used to make God's people holy. 
Okay. Well, I hope you join me for the next episode. I might break it up so that we don't have this much Leviticus, um, but I will finish out the book for you guys. I'm excited to do so. There are certain laws which I am so excited about. There's one about uh, fleeing from a uh, Avenger if you accidentally killed somebody, which I think you're going to love. And then the slavery ones, you're going to love those too. So I hope you join me for those. Thanks for listening as always, and God bless.